Prince William risks a royal impartiality storm, King Charles returns to public duties, and what Americans think of the prospects of a King Charles abdication. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Chief Royal Correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello listeners and welcome to the show. Now, you may remember the royals all coming out with statements about the Hamas attack in Israel in which around 1,200 people were killed on October the 7th. And I said at the time that William was the only one who actually mentioned the Palestinian people by name. Well, months have passed since then and the death toll in Gaza has soared with AP reporting recently that it's passed 29,000 Palestinian casualties. So at the time that William released that initial statement, around 900 people had died. 900 uh, Palestinians, that is, in Gaza. Um, William clearly felt his contribution to this discussion needed updating, um, that there was space for him to try to exert some kind of influence here, as international attitudes to Benjamin Netanyahu have been hardening. So, the most interesting part of this all, in my view, was that Prince William's statement, which uh, I'll read out in full, but he released this big statement on Tuesday. It was packed full of coded language. And, you know, it's it's very clearly a direct challenge to Benjamin Netanyahu, the, the prime minister of a major power in the Middle East. Uh, very, very unusual for a royal family member. So let's hear exactly what he had to say. He said, I remain deeply concerned about the terrible human cost of the conflict in the Middle East since the Hamas terror attack on 7 October. Too many have been killed. I, like so many others, want to see an end to the fighting as soon as possible. There is a desperate need for increased humanitarian support to Gaza. It's critical that aid gets in and that hostages are released. Sometimes it is only when faced with the sheer scale of human suffering that the importance of permanent peace is brought home. Even in the darkest hour, we must not succumb to the counsel of despair. I continue to cling to the hope that a brighter future can be found, and I refuse to give up on that. Now, I see this as a direct challenge to Netanyahu. Uh, It is exceptionally rare for a royal family member to do this, to kind of take on the prime minister of another country, to take on the prime minister of Israel. Um, Queen Elizabeth II would literally never have done this in a million years. Um, first of all, uh, too many have been killed. That is a clear reference to the sky-high casualty figures in Gaza. Um, William is not the first to raise this, and so his comments land on a kind of already fertile ground. We know significant concerns have been raised about whether Israel is doing enough to protect civilian life. That's all kind of already in the discussion. It was already in the discourse that surrounds this issue. So then you have the reference to seeing an end to the fighting as soon as possible. Now, he's not used the word ceasefire, but the statement was timed just as MPs in Britain's Parliament were preparing to vote on a motion calling for a ceasefire in, in, in between Israel and Hamas. Now, there are some rumblings that this could actually be possible this week, that maybe we might be nearing a point where the possibility for a ceasefire is entering into view. But this was very much not the situation last week when William made these comments. Um, it was very much not the position of the Israeli government at the time. Um, then there's the issue of aid into Gaza, which is hugely controversial. The International Court of Justice has actually ordered Israel to facilitate aid into Gaza. And this week, Human Rights Watch accused Israel of blocking aid and of starving the Palestinian people. So aid is not a straightforward 
situation. It might sound like it is if you have a war zone that needs to be aid, but the point is that the call for aid to get in takes place in a context where Israel has been accused of blocking aid. Um, obviously, he has mentioned the release of the hostages as well, so that's a kind of plus point for the Israeli side. Um, but he does also follow this up by trying to bring the focus onto permanent peace. Now, um, Netanyahu has all but ruled this out, basically. He has said he is opposed to a two-state solution, which, if truth be told, is the only game in town in terms of permanently resolving this conflict. And he also recently wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal in which he cited three demands before a permanent peace can be reached. Now, one of those was the de-radicalization of the whole of Palestinian society. Obviously, radicalization is not something you can objectively measure, and you will therefore never be in a position to say that goal has ever been met. So I think we can consider Netanyahu to have effectively kicked the whole concept of a permanent peace thoroughly into the long grass. To cut a long story short, William's statement was a giant challenge to a figure on the world stage who represents a country that is is Britain's ally, but an ally within which there are currently strained relations. Um, it is also, you know, it's just such a controversial topic on which people feel so strongly and people just have such strong memories, you know. Um, people really remember who their heroes and villains are in really controversial topics like this. I mean, Israel and Palestine is up there with kind of abortion and issues like that as a topic that just stirs incredibly heated debate. I remember even when I was a, you know, right at the beginning of my career as a journalist on a local paper, people would write into the local paper to kind of try and express their opinion on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, even though it had nothing to do with the local area that I was reporting on. So why did William do this and what will the consequences be? Well, firstly, on the point of why, one really interesting aspect of this is the fact that this wasn't his first statement. And like I said earlier, when William and Charles and Harry and Meghan all released their statements back in October, William was the only one to mention the Palestinians by name. So we were looking then at around 900 Palestinians killed. And so the tone of William's statement didn't really reflect the huge loss of life that we've seen now. Um, the key part of that statement read, the horrors inflicted by Hamas's terrorist attack upon Israel are appalling. They utterly condemn them, they being um, William and Kate. As Israel exercises its right of self-defense, all Israelis and Palestinians will continue to be stalked by grief, fear and anger in the time to come. Their royal highnesses hold all the victims, their families and their friends in their hearts and minds. So some acknowledgement there of grief, which suggests the loss of life um, and fear and anger on both sides. But still, it didn't make any reference to because it, I suppose it hadn't happened yet. It didn't make any reference to the huge civilian death toll in Gaza. So effectively, I think William probably felt maybe even a little guilty that he didn't say more to advocate for Palestinian civilians back in October. Um, he's been out to the West Bank and passed in 2018 to meet Palestinians on the ground, and he has a better understanding than most royals of what the conflict is like on both sides. I suspect that in hindsight, he may well wish that he'd been a little bit stronger back in October uh, in the way that he worded that statement, and therefore felt now that he had to come out and redress the balance effectively. Um, so he not only released the new statement, he also met with the Red Cross to learn about the work of the Red Cross and the Red Crescent emergency responders who have been on the ground in Gaza helping uh, casualties. And this week, he's also got another job in the diary in which he will learn about anti-Semitism in targeting the Jewish community in Britain, I think is going to be the focus. 
Um, essentially, though, he has jumped off the fence to give his opinion on the most controversial issue in global politics. And it's a conflict in which, you know, people will remember this. I think that's the point I would try to get across most strongly, is that if you are one of those people who really, really, really cares about this conflict more than most people, it's kind of with it's one of your issues that you keep a very close eye on people will remember what William has said for years to come. Now, some of those people may like what he said, and so that will be a positive thing for William that he's remembered it. But if he upsets people, they will carry that negative association with him for a very, very long time. Um, and that meant that it was a huge risk, basically. Uh, so let's also think about how the statement went down. Israel responded somewhat dismissively to uh, to his words, which I don't actually think he needs to worry about too much for reasons that I'll go into, but let me read their statement first. So Israelis, of course, want to see an end to the fighting as soon as possible, and that will be possible once the 134 hostages are released, and once the Hamas terror army threatening to repeat the October 7 atrocities is dismantled. We appreciate the Prince of Wales' call for Hamas to free the hostages. We also recall, with gratitude, his statement from October 11 condemning Hamas's terror attacks and reaffirming Israel's right of self-defense against them. So, like I said, I think that's dismissive rather than hostile. Um, meanwhile, the Telegraph reported that Israel was a little taken aback by William's comments, but also not inclined to pick a fight with him publicly because he's a royal. So, from William's perspective, this statement is actually kind of a win because it shows that Israel took notice. You know, he wouldn't want them to ignore him completely. So obviously he absolutely wants them to have seen and, you know, and taken on board what he said. That's the whole point. Um, but it didn't get ugly. You know, they didn't go into open war, into an open war of words with him. So he's had an impact, but he's broadly got away with it from a controversy point of view. That's internationally, though, and there's still the question of how it will go down in Britain. So most of the rumblings in the UK were from uh, the right wing of politics. Conservative Party politicians made their feelings known um, to, you know, the kind of usual suspects in the British press. Some went on the record, some were off the record. One who who was willing to be named was Andrew Percy. He's a Conservative MP and Vice Chairman of the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Anti-Semitism, and he had this to say. The underlying principle of our constitutional monarchy is that members of the royal family do not engage in contentious political issues of the day, on which there are divergent and strongly held beliefs in this country. Members of the royal family would do well to remember that. So that's a bit of a, a, a warning shot across William's bow. You know, this is a controversial issue. Your role as a royal is to stick out of it. Um, Nigel Farage, who um, was the leader of the UK Independence Party, but is now a GB News presenter, uh, did a segment on it on his show. And he also wrote on Twitter, I'm not sure that our future king should be doing this. He should stick to the BAFTAs. And, you know, that is actually a, a valid point to make that William uh, will one day be king. And when he's king, he will have to be part of the direct diplomatic efforts between Britain and Israel. However, it was not all condemnation. And in fact, one of the most notably supportive responses was one that will, I think, give William quite a significant amount of reassurance. And that was from the chief rabbi. So Ephraim Mervis wrote on, on Twitter, or, or X as we now call it, um, since his visit to the region in 2018, the Prince of Wales has shown a deep concern for the well-being of all those affected by the conflict in the Middle East. And his words of compassion today, which I welcome, are yet further evidence of this. 
His plan to visit a synagogue to learn more about the troubling global increase in anti-Semitism will send a powerful message that there must be no place for anti-Jewish hatred in our society. So I think William will be quite relieved about that. It's, you know, those are warm words. Uh, And I think his biggest concern going into this would have been if there was a major backlash from Jewish Brits, and particularly if there was a feeling that, you know, if there was an effort made to try to kind of present it as though William was taking Hamas's side or something like that. And if that was coming from the Jewish community specifically, that could have got really very damaging to William very fast. So I think the fact that he seems to have the backing of the chief rabbi is going to be a huge relief for him um, and, you know, will really help to put the palace's mind at ease as well. I think in terms of the reaction on the right of politics, I think William will probably take that. Right-wing commentators in Britain have been very outspoken in their support for the monarchy. They're not just going to, you know, suddenly reverse that. They've Right-wing people in Britain have gone really hard line behind William and Kate and behind Charles and Camilla and behind the monarchy as part of their rejection of Harry and Meghan. And so as much as they might feel uneasy about William doing this, they are so deeply entrenched in that kind of Harry and Meghan bad, William and Kate good mentality that they can't just rip it all up or they'll have effectively kind of, you know, destroyed the monarchy, (laughs) which they are pro-monarchy people. So, you know, if they destroy Harry and Meghan uh, and then they destroy William and Kate, then there's nothing left. Um, So uh, they might not like it, but they're going to have to lump it. Um, And... You know, if anything, because those people are so outspokenly pro-monarchy, there has always been a bit of a risk, I think, for the royals that they start to become associated with the right wing of politics in people's minds. As in, you know, if if your big bigger supporters are all right wing, does that mean you're right wing yourselves? Like, you know, I don't think that they would want to be seen that way. Which means that a little pull to the left can serve as kind of course correction back into the centre as long as he picks the right issue and doesn't oversteer. Um, So I think he's probably fine in that respect. And as it happens, there was polling done by YouGov which shows 47% of British people, British adults, felt William's comments were appropriate compared to 24% who felt they were not appropriate and 29% who said they did not know. But, predictably, Conservatives were more likely to fall into the inappropriate column, um, while those who vote Labour, Britain's Protestant Party, were less so. Um, And what's quite interesting there is those Conservative-leaning, Conservative-supporting voters are, like I said, they're not just suddenly going to turn on monarchy. You know, that is the most pro-monarchy part of British society. So if the discontent is located among those voters those people aren't going to turn on the royals just purely over this. So I think those are quite healthy numbers in reality for William off the back of the risk he's taken. Um, There is, however, another theory, which is that William did this to impress young people who have recently become more uh, kind of negative about monarchy, more hostile to the royals. Now, uh, anyone who listens to this show will have heard me go on about this quite a lot because there's been a few rounds of polling where there's been a relevant conversation Now, some disappointing news for William, if that was the aim. Young people were, in fact, the most likely to be apathetic uh, about William's comments. 79% of respondents under the age of 25 said they did not know whether they thought it was appropriate or inappropriate. Now, that's obviously a huge number, and it highlights the huge challenge William faces if he wants to get young people back on side. 
It's not just that young people want public figures to stand up for what's right. It's that you have to kind of shout it from the rooftops. The subtle, carefully worded diplomatic language that the royals use in these kind of very charged situations just doesn't cut through in the social media age. You know, young today's young people are used to celebrities who pick a stance and then advocates it with their whole heart and soul. You know, there's a lesson here as well for William to take away that could have wide-reaching implications in other areas because we've seen, you know, we've seen this same kind of dynamic where the royals have expressed sorrow over slavery but not said sorry for example. Um, And that is another point where 18 to 24 year olds just don't care about people who say, well, I can't do what I've been asked to do, but here I can do something slightly less uh, that I hope you'll just be happy with all the same. You know, that's not what they want. They want William to shout it from the rooftops that the royal family of Elizabeth I's era, for example, had responsibility for slavery and made money off it and made money off empire and made money off colonialism and they want them to just come out and say sorry for that. They don't want the mealy-mouthed version. Um, so it's a bind that he may simply never find a way out of without tearing the rule book to shreds um, and taking on not just the Israeli government but also the British government too because if he was going to go any further than he went he would have clashed with British foreign policy. So part of the reason why William was able to say what he said uh, is because, and he, for what it's worth, uh, we understand that he showed his statement in advance to the government and Downing Street signed off on it. Um, part of the reason he was able to say it is because it is in tune with British foreign policy. It is the foreign policy of the British government that um, Israel needs to respect civilian life in Gaza, that Israel needs to ensure aid gets into Gaza. Um, These things are a challenge to Israel, but the British government currently is seeking to challenge Netanyahu and to try to push him away from certain things, including attacking Rafa. Um, So that doesn't necessarily mean that William is being neutral, because the British government isn't neutral but it does mean that he is not clashing with His Majesty's government, with the King's government, with the British government. Now, if he were to go any further, for example, and let's, I mean, you know, only speaking hypothetically, but let's say he was to accuse Netanyahu of war crimes uh, or accuse Netanyahu of genocide, or he were to issue a unilateral apology for slavery in in contradiction to uh, British policy, then he would be in direct contradiction to the government's and that would be a major kind of constitutional crisis. So he is hemmed in in his capacity to appeal to 18 to 24 year olds in the terms that they are accustomed to being spoken to. So it may just be a risk too far uh, for a royal who is meant to be neutral. And on that note, I'm going to take a quick break. Please remember to rate and review The Royal Report on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you get your favourite shows. When I'm back, King Charles described being brought to tears by cards and messages. BP added more than $70 billion to the US economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello and welcome back to the show. King Charles had his first public engagement last week since stepping down to focus on his health. Um, He first went into the London Clinic for a procedure on an enlarged prostate uh, where a second issue was picked up. He was subsequently diagnosed with cancer and in early February began regular treatment. So obviously a hugely difficult few weeks for him. Um, Around two weeks later, he had his first face-to-face meeting with the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. They have a a weekly audience, but they'd been conducting that by phone. So this was at Buckingham Palace. Charles has been coming to London anyway for his treatment, and um, they they welcomed in the cameras. So there were there were TV crews there to record live, and that gave us a chance to get a sense of Charles's mood. And he was very warm with the Prime Minister. Um, Rishi said some warm and supportive words back to him. But interestingly, Charles was remarkably willing to show some vulnerability. He acknowledged there'd been a bit of a gap, I'm afraid, since the last time they met, and he offered a joke. He said, it's wonderful to see... Oh, sorry, the Prime Minister said, it's wonderful to see you looking so well, and Charles responded, well, it's all done by mirrors, really. So, you know, kind of, it's an illusion, I suppose, is what he's saying. Um, he also said that he had received so many wonderful messages and cards, it's reduced me to tears most of the time. Um, the rest of the meeting obviously happened behind closed doors, which is customary. You know, it's important state business that they're discussing and we're not allowed to know. Um, who knows? Maybe they, they uh, had a full debrief on William's comments about Gaza um, and how they those went down with Conservative Party MPs. Who knows? Uh, we will never know. But there are some hints there in what Charles said that the diagnosis has hit him quite hard. So first of all, you've got the joke about his radiant appearance being an illusion. That speaks for itself. But also the key thing is that um, you're only going to be reduced to tears by the emotional cards if you are already operating at a heightened emotional state. Now, perhaps we should take his comments with a little bit of a pinch of salt in the sense that he could partly be talking figuratively. But clearly, I think he's being genuine when he says that he was overcome or overwhelmed with emotion. Um, So what does this all mean for the king's health? Well, we know Rishi Sunak has previously said that the cancer was caught early. So hopefully that's a good sign. Um, We don't know what type of cancer it is, but I do think it's encouraging that Charles has gone back to work, albeit in a very limited way. Obviously, this isn't full time. He's not been doing kind of like daily engagements and visiting charities and traveling all over the country. Um, But this shows some motivation and some optimism, which is great to see. Um, It will also be reassuring, I think, for the public to see Charles back in the saddle, and it'll be a visual reminder that there are still things he is required to do as monarch that can only be done um, and he by him and you know he is doing those state duties um, as I've said on this podcast before the first moment that Charles's capacity to continue acting as monarch without William needing to step in and help the first test of that will come after the next general election and that could either be in the springtime um, if the government decides to call a snap election in the spring or most likely the noises coming out of Westminster that will be in the autumn the absolute latest it could be is January 
Um, and so basically, after an election, you have an, you begin a new session of parliament. So the prime minister will have to tell the king that, you know, parliament, the parliamentary session is going to come to an end. There's going to be a general election. And then afterwards, you have the state opening of parliament where the king is expected to read the king's speech outlining the government's legislative agenda for the next term. Now, he doesn't write that speech himself. It's not his opinions. It's not his policies. But... It is written for him by the government and he has to read it. So it's a much longer day. Uh, Now, this is all likely to be some way off, but it's going to be kind of, you know, there's a whole kind of carriage procession in which he'll be photographed when he goes to Parliament. Then they they kind of process into the chamber. He then has has to sit there, you know, potentially wearing the crown. I mean, in the Queen's... In later years, she, she actually didn't wear the crown anymore. But I think even if he didn't, that would probably also be read into. Um, you know, it's a long, it's just a much longer day for him than a quick meeting with the prime minister. And if he needs William to step in and do that for him, then that will be hugely symbolic, I think. The palace also released some video of Charles reading some of these Get Well Soon cards. And also he, he actually released his own kind of big public statement on an international, um, an international issue, which was the two-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. Uh, He said, the determination and strength of the Ukrainian people continues to inspire as the unprovoked attack on their land, their lives and livelihoods enters a third tragic year. Despite the tremendous hardship and pain inflicted upon them, Ukrainians continue to show the heroism with which the world associates them so closely. Theirs is true valour in the face of indescribable aggression. I have felt this personally in the many meetings I have had with Ukrainians since the start of the war. From President Zelensky and Mrs. Zelenska to new army recruits training here in the United Kingdom. I continue to be greatly encouraged that United Kingdom and our allies remain at the forefront of international efforts to support Ukraine at this time of such great suffering and need. My heart goes out to all those affected as I remember them in my thoughts and prayers. Now, this was, for what it's worth, also probably more outspoken than we might have expected from the Queen. Again, he is very obviously taking Ukraine's side in the conflict with Putin. Whether he has, of course, picked a far less contentious issue in the sense that there is little to no support in Britain for Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin is, in fact, one of the only people who is less popular than uh, Charles' brother, Prince Andrew, in the eyes of the British public. Um, so I don't think he's going to uh, live to regret these comments. I mean, I'm not sure that William will, will live to regret his either, to be fair. But it's, there's not an active debate in Britain about whether Putin's in the right or the wrong. Pretty much everybody thinks he's in the wrong. There may be a tiny minority who don't, but they're not in any way, shape or form vocal. So I think, you know, the message, I suppose, that's coming out of all this from the palace is to just try to remind the British public that business is continuing. And just because we're seeing less of Charles, it doesn't mean that he isn't doing anything at all or keeping up with world events. But, you know, we shall have to see what the what the following weeks and months brings. And hopefully his treatment goes well and we see him back doing the more regular run of royal engagement sometime soon. I'm going to take one more quick break, but before I do, a reminder to follow me on X or Twitter. I'm at Jack underscore Royston. You will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. When I'm back, Americans would back King Charles if he abdicated the throne on health grounds. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. There's something magical about unboxing. 
When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. Talk of abdication has been a feature of the early years of King Charles's reign, but until now it really wasn't in any way a plausible suggestion. So there always used to be this talk of, you know, William's way more popular than Charles, should Charles basically take early retirement and pass the crown to William? And it's really, you know, it's not really ever been a plausible suggestion because Charles isn't going to want to do that. It's not how the monarchy works. But now, with his recent cancer diagnosis, it has become slightly more plausible to consider a situation in which, if his health worsened, it might interfere with his ability to do the job of monarch. That would in turn raise questions over whether he should continue going as king in name alone or whether he should abdicate and let William take over. Now, we asked a polling agency we work with, Redfield and Wilson, to conduct a survey with a representative sample of US adults on whether or not they would support the king abdicating to focus on his health. And the short answer is that they would. So actually, by quite a significant margin as well. Um, So we asked 1,500 US adults and 51% said they would support Charles stepping down, while only 3% would oppose it. So that's obviously, you know, huge margins. I mean, I think a significant chunk of that is probably kind of sympathy uh, for Charles and, you know, the idea that he might want to step down to focus on his health and not be forced to do the job. But one thing that's quite interesting is YouGov, which is a UK-based polling agency, used to regularly ask a similar question to British adults about Queen Elizabeth II. And their wording of their question was, in the event that the Queen were to become too ill to regularly carry out royal duties or appear in public, then do you think she should remain monarch or should she retire and let the throne pass to her heirs? Now, you would think that they might feel a similar kind of protectiveness towards the Queen and a similar desire for the Queen to just kind of uh, recover or experience her health problems quietly in private and rest. But, you know, consistently between 2019 and 2022, British people actually regularly expressed a desire for the Queen to remain as monarch, even if that was in name alone, while other family members carried out some of her duties. Um, So in the final months of her life, so this is in 2022, obviously nobody knew it was the final months of her life, but they did know that she was having health problems at the time. 55% of Brits felt she should remain queen, compared to 32% who felt she should stand down. Obviously, it would have been Charles then that she was passing the crown to. In Charles's case, it's William. So, you know, the YouGov question is phrased slightly differently, um, but essentially Americans appeared to feel very find it very easy to suggest that Charles should just simply focus on his health and let William take over whereas British people seem to find it quite difficult to uh, to kind of come to terms with the idea that the queen would go within her lifetime maybe that's partly because she so famously said that she would dedicate her whole life to public service so perhaps people had a kind of more concrete idea in their minds of the queen as somebody who wanted to be there for her whole life 
Um, but people must, I think everybody does know how long Charles was waiting to do this job. I mean, it's not a mystery to people. It's not like a kind of secret piece of information. Everybody knows he's been waiting decades upon decades upon decades to do the job of king. And it's, you know, honestly really sad that so soon into his reign, he's had this massive health crisis that's caused him to kind of step back from public duties in this way. So, you know, it's it all makes for very uncomfortable reading, I'm sure, for Charles, but also it's very uncomfortable to discuss. I mean, honestly, I, I feel very sorry for the bloke. I think a lot of Americans probably feel the same way. They don't necessarily feel very attached to the idea that he has to keep going, but I'm sure there's a lot of sympathy for him. And of course, it's, you know, it was less than a year ago that we had the coronation. I mean, he's, he's been king for a little over a year, but it was May that he had the coronation. So he's only actually been wearing the crown in a literal sense for less than a year. And yeah, I mean, you know, he's still doing some of the duties of monarch, but it's not the same. And it must be a huge kind of dent in him and hugely frustrating um, so would he want to abdicate? You know, I think absolutely not, is the honest answer. Um, but will he be forced to abdicate? And I think Charles would want to continue as king in name alone for as long as humanly possible before actual succession to Prince William took place. The question, though, is how long would that be sustainable? You know, would the British public accept King Charles remaining a king in name alone while the job was effectively being done by Prince William, you know, how much of it would need to be done by Prince William in order for people to feel like this was an untenable situation. You know, it also, there's a slight risk that it exposes some of the kind of monarchy's bubble, which is something that I've talked about before on this show, that, you know, there is something at the heart of monarchy that's a bit of a bubble. The actual core function of monarch is quite small, and a lot of the work that they do day in, day out, and week in, week out is a kind of optional extra. All the charity visits, all the good causes, it's obviously really important work, but it's not strictly constitutionally necessary. And moments like this can expose how small a portion of the actual job is the core constitutional function. Um, but, you know, the British public might well be sympathetic, but then the reverence that we've uh, become used to seeing in relation to Queen Elizabeth II doesn't seem to be there for Charles in the same way. So as much as I'm sure there would be a lot of sympathy for Charles as a person with cancer, as there is for everybody with cancer, uh, it's not impossible that the, that people would feel slightly more able to kind of clamour for leadership and certainty that succession would bring than they would under the Queen. And William's very popular. People do, uh, people do love him. Certainly, older generations in particular absolutely love William. He's very, he's slightly less popular among among young people. But actually, in all honesty, his numbers among young people are still actually pretty good. Um, so I would, you know, I would still say he's popular among the young as well. Um, obviously, we had Queen Margaret of, of Denmark stepping down on New Year's Eve, or she also cited health reasons. I mean, you know, it was a back operation, I think, that had happened some months previously, but clearly the whole kind of experience had taken its toll. But that, I mean, for me, that's just not Charles's personality, in my honest opinion. Charles is a stubborn man. He knows what he wants. He's been waiting for this for a very long time, and he clearly wanted it, no matter what you know. Harry might have said in the past about nobody wants the job, we just do our duty. You know, he, Charles clearly does want the job. He did want to be king. And I can't honestly see him stepping down unless he's absolutely forced to. So as in, I think it would have to be a case that the monarchy is sinking and 
the only way out is for you to basically abdicate and let Prince William take over and inject some life into it. I think those are the only set of circumstances where he would actually want to give this up for the greater good. It would have to be really, really clear that abdication was for the greater good of British society and for the greater good of the monarchy. Otherwise, I think he does, to be honest, and he knows what he wants and he, he does expect to get it. And it is a time when, you know, he does deserve sympathy. Like anyone who's going through cancer deserves sympathy. So hopefully all of this is purely hypothetical and Charles makes a swift recovery and everything goes back to normal. But it is a valid thing to start considering at an early stage, especially because that kind of, I think, you know, it helps us to have all thought through it a little bit before the stage that hopefully we don't get to where things get worse. Um, And that's it for this week's episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thank you for listening, everyone, and a curtsy to you all.